You're listening to the Music Interval Theory Podcast with TC and Frank. Hello and welcome to another fantastic episode in the Music Interval Theory Podcast. My name is Frank, I'm the host for today's episode and I want to present to you the replay of a fantastic open discussion session that we've had with some great Meta members. This session took place at the end of 2023 and we chatted about our approaches to rhythm in our compositions. Let's jump right into this fantastic discussion. Here we go. So let's actually start with this subject because rhythm obviously is an important thing in music and especially also in composition. I'm pretty sure that everybody here in this group has an opinion on rhythm and that is the interesting part to me. So obviously I'm going to ask first, guys, is somebody here who can't wait to share his own opinion on rhythm, maybe even a story that is connected to that subject? I always thought that I'm not very good at rhythm. I, I, and when I, when I mean rhythm, I mean uh, in an orchestration, create something with percussion. And, but at the end, when I've done it, I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> it still to me seems that, it, uh, that what I've done happened by, by chance, not because I have a clear idea of what I was doing. But when it, when it gets to the orchestration, let's, let's talk about that, because maybe this is helpful. I would approach it with two different ideas. The first idea being, again, the overtone series, like have the big drums and the heavy stuff more on the simple grid, which is essentially you know, the strong downbeats of your rhythm. I would not try to use any syncoped rhythm on a grand casa, let's say, because nobody is going to get it anyway. But uh, the, the point is, if you have the low-pitched drums or percussion, just put them on simple stuff. And the higher you go, if it's non-pitched at the moment, let's stick to non-pitched uh, instruments, then I would add more complexity, very much like the OTS suggests. So the higher you go, the more stuff you can add on top and the more complex the rhythm can be because it will actually live on top of each other. And most often that approach works. This is exactly, by the way, what you get to hear in all of the trailer music. That is 100% the recipe for big trailer drums. Just put the big stuff on the low pulse so that you create a pulse and anchor this in your rhythm and then let the higher stuff you know, be more complex and add all the great stuff around it so that you don't necessarily just double your strong beats. That's going to work very nicely. But that is just one approach. I said two approaches. <laughs> the, the second one would be as a transient. So I'm using uh, rhythm very often to tickle out some of the transients in lines or in a specific, let's say, pattern that I want to turn into a repetitive element for the audience. So if that is the task, let's say, then this can, for example, can work with a snare drum, but also with some pitched percussion xylophone, for example. But all of these pitched percussions, they work very nicely for that purpose, just for highlighting the transients. And if you look at your line, you see a rhythm already. 
right? And that is what I would put on these instruments as well. Actually, when it comes to rhythm in more general ways, I would approach it most likely a bit different. And we can also talk about that a bit later. But since you mentioned the orchestra, Claudio, I would I would start there and then tweak it, create some holes in your orchestration. And they don't have to necessarily fall on a downbeat. And then you carve out that space in the low end and just hit with the Gran Casa <laughs> at that yeah. moment. And it's going to work, even if it was, you know, the second, eighth note. Why not? If it makes sense in the overall context, I wouldn't say there is a right or wrong it should be logical for the audience. If the audience is confused, then they probably won't be able to follow your musical idea anymore. And then you're going to lose them. So as I'm listening to you talk, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about that. And um, one of the things I've discovered over the years in my own writing is I abhor starting phrases on downbeats. It's just evolved kind of naturally that way because one of the things that I was taught as an improviser, as, a, as an instrumentalist, is the concept of, of forward motion, you know, rhythmic forward motion, the fact that you always lead into a strong beat as opposed to starting with a strong beat. So, for example, if you're in 4-4 four, four, and if you start a phrase on one leading to three, da-da-da-da-da, it's much weaker than starting on the end of one and leading to three, ba-da-ba-da. There's much more motion towards your target in that way. And, you know, so syncopation, not even necessarily syncopation, just starting your phrases in a way that they actually move towards a target as opposed to starting from what feels like to me a dead stop. <laughs> you know, you're, you're stopped and moving as opposed to moving into, you know, the next place. The other thing that I found fascinating was I have at various times in my life tried to make my way through the Schillinger system and uh, looking at Schillinger's approach to rhythm and, you know, mapping rhythm and things like that. I mean, rhythm for me, I have this conversation with my students a lot because rhythm for me was never anything I've really had to work at reading it or understanding it. It just makes sense to me. So I'm not a great teacher of rhythm for that reason, because I don't really have to think about it. So I've had to work hard at thinking about rhythm to teach my students how to deal with rhythm. To me, it sounds almost like you're playing with your audience's expectations quite a bit. Yes. That is key, I think. So for example, <laughs> you, you said, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that you, you rather lead into a strong beat than start on a strong beat, right? Yes, that's correct. So for, for example, you can almost reverse it in speech. And if I would start a sentence and then simply just not, you know exactly what I wanted to. <laughs> and this is, this is brilliant. And this kind of happens also in music. When you listen to music and just give this first half of an idea, the audience wants to hear the second half. They just want to. And you can play with this expectation, of course. And it is a funny thing. Sometimes um, you might even not give it to them <laughs> but you you have to be careful because um at some point you will lose them if it's you know too hidden in whatever complexity then they don't want to search for the proper way of interpreting your rhythm or your phrase i mean obviously it's a dance that you're doing between your rhythm section you know depending on 
whether you're writing orchestrally or you're writing for, uh, you know, a band situation or, you know, whatever the, the orchestration is. But, you know, there's that constant tension and push and pull and dance between, you know, as you were saying before, the lower end of the spectrum, the, the instruments that are holding down the fundamental pulse, both harmonically and rhythmically. And then the other instruments, I mean, uh, you know, if you think in terms of the drum kit, what's happening in a, you know, on a drum kit, you have the kick drum generally on some version of one and three and the hi-hats are playing all around it, <laughs> yep. you know, and if you think of it in terms of the spectrum of sound between those, you know, two instruments, you know, there's your overtone series, you know, a great drummer is going to set that expectation of departure and arrival based upon how they filter the hi-hats and the snare drum as well as the toms and cymbals throughout the time between the hats and the kick drum and if you apply the same principle to orchestration in the orchestra you can do the same sort of journey through time you know so you've got the horizontal time and the vertical harmony and you're doing the whole you know you're doing that entire dance among the orchestra i'm not being very clear in what i'm trying to say but I think you understand what I'm trying to say. It does make sense. <laughs> you know, early on, I used to be a Jerry Goldsmith fan. I always thought he was the one composer, even more so than John Williams or any other guys, that knew how to make the orchestra groove. And I remember that there was a scene in, a, in an animated film called The Secret of Nim. And I always remembered this. And my brother was an animator, so... He actually got the scores to some of this stuff. So it was really interesting to see how he makes the orchestra groove. One of the things that he did in the scene, it was a uh, was this little mom and her baby mice, and they were in this big field, and way across the field, there was a tractor. And all you did is you heard the tractor start up, and then from way across the field, you saw the smoke of the stack and the tractor and it was going to plow the field. And so there was imminent danger for the little mouse family. And so he sets he set up a groove. And I thought, wow, this guy's a rock and roller with the orchestra. And the groove was real simple. It was if you had this, it, the bottom end was bum, 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 bum. And he set that up, like John was saying, he would start on the and, uh, you got in the lower strings and stuff, you know. And it was really exciting. And I realized that there's a, f a few grooves that always work and I use them. <laughs> I use those, those grooves and vary them a little bit, but they work in almost all the sections. And you can, you can do the same sort of stuff with just a woodwind section. And so I would say, to me, Jerry Goldsmith, when it came to orchestral grooves, was the master. He really, you know, he really had a lot of great ideas and great voicings and ways to orchestrate the strings against a simple groove like that. So it just kept moving like this. And you got an overall big pulse going. And those little mice, they got out of there. <laughs> Uh, music scared him to death. I end up with three ideas that I still take when I approach rhythm. And the first one, you might have heard this, you being, you know, the whole group here. 
that is very similar to how I approach the tempo, which is just, you know, I pay attention to the heartbeat rate. So if I want to have a rhythm for a scene, then I just imagine how do I want the audience to feel and how can I get the audience there? So that determines more or less tempo and the rhythm as well. And when I say rhythm, this is not limited necessarily to an ostinato or a ground motif or something like that. It can also be the rhythm of just a line that shows up as the main melody, as the theme. And that is how I approach these things. Like, okay, do I want to hear some quick notes, which might be good for a thriller type of writing, you know, where you have just a little moment that grabs your attention. And then there is silence again. And, you know, you, you might wonder, well, what was that? Is there something supposed to be happening here on screen? It's a bit scary in that scene, so I better be prepared. And you push the audience in that direction, like how they are supposed to feel. The same thing can be done for, let's say, these wide shots where you have nature and you, you see mountains and forests and everything. Obviously, you don't want to have these quick moving lines on top. So it's rather a slow moving, soaring line on top of a chord progression or something. And it just evokes a different emotion. But this is just all based on the way I imagine my heartbeat rate. So that's uh, my, my first trusted go-to technique. And it worked pretty much all the time, <laughs> which is not easy to explain or to teach, as you said, John, because um, this is just limited to your interpretation, which is not a good thing for teaching generally. But um, you can absolutely train somebody to listen to their own heartbeat rate, and then they develop their own voice and their own shape in music. So I think it is still a valid technique for everybody. The second thing is very similar to what I, what I do in the orchestration, and that is just create contrast. So if I had something, let's say in a movie where you have in one scene, you score the outer action and you, you know, more or less Mickey Mouse, the, the stuff that is happening on screen. Then for example, in the next scene, why not switch to the emotional side of the main character, if it makes sense, of course, and score his inner feelings. And this is completely contrary, most often at least, to what you heard before in terms of rhythm and maybe even energy. And this is also an interesting approach, I think. So that is really just like, look at what you did in one thing and then try to do something different in the next part that still makes sense to the story. So this would be my premise, of course. If it doesn't make sense for the whole story, then just for the sake of you know, putting in contrast, I wouldn't do it. But uh, most often this also works because it keeps the audience from falling asleep. <laughs> you just present something new. The third approach that uh, I, I at least look at, I haven't explored this fully. And now that I've started this whole thing, uh, I try to explain it, but it, I'm saying this beforehand, it's not at a stage that it is teachable yet. But some years ago, I came across a video from Adam Neely and uh, he explained something where he picked some chords, a major chord, and he slowed it down to a point that you could hear the pulses of each of those frequencies. So you have the fundamental, the perfect fifth, 
to the fundamental and the major third to the fundamental. And he put this all on the same pitch so that you just hear one rhythm and you couldn't really understand where some of those dots came from. So he explained this all in the context of polyrhythm. But his point was that rhythm and harmony is the same thing. It just depends on how big the scale is that you look at things. If you look at a C major triad, for example, then it sounds like harmony. But if you slowed this down to a point that you get to hear these transitions in the sine wave where it crosses the axis, then that is exactly where rhythm comes into play. And it's really interesting because as, as major triad, it doesn't matter which fundamental you pick, but a major triad sounds very heroic when you slow it down. <laughs> so it is not a polyrhythm that sounds disturbing. It is rather something that is very familiar and like a call to the arms, but in a friendly way, like let's defend ourselves. And you can do this thing with all of the intervals. Of course, if you just have one note, it doesn't make any sense to slow it down. So you have to have at least two notes. So one interval or more. So the octave is twice the frequency of the fundamental. That's the octave. So it's a ratio two to one. If you play this as a rhythm, it's a very simple rhythm. Well, guess what? The octave is a very simple interval. Now, the next higher interval, the more complex interval, would be the perfect fifth. And that has a ratio three to two. So now you can just take three against two, and then you have this kind of polyrhythm. And if you line it up, again, it doesn't sound very complex. It actually does sound very natural. And that is why the perfect fifth just fits in harmony everywhere. You can put it on top of every chord. It just works. And the explanation is because of the frequency ratio between those two tones that are involved. The more complex you get with the intervals, the more complex the rhythm becomes. And this correlation is something that you can use as a starting point. Also for ostinados and for motors in the background, so just imagine you stack these things on top of each other, still following the overtone series, so that you have, for example, the rhythm of the perfect octave in the lower part of the orchestra. This would be the pulse, the fundamental pulse, so to speak. Then on top, you bring in the perfect fifth and that rhythm, this three to two ratio, put this in the middle uh, register somewhere. Then on top, you go with a perfect fourth, which happens to be a four to three ratio, right? So again, it's, it's a bit more complex and you stack these things on top of each other. Obviously, you don't want to have more power in the higher register than you have in the lower ones because, you know, you will get out of balance here. But still, I think the way the overtone series works, which is essentially with every octave, the volume gets quieter and the complexity gets higher. That is the nature of the OTS. If you follow this with these rhythms, these polyrhythms, you get to some very interesting results. And you don't have to follow the overtones as they show up in the OTS. You know, why not pick a tritone? <laughs> Which is a ratio, very handy, uh, 54 to 32. <laughs> now that is not practical, I know. If you have no idea what to do, I would really look at nature 
most of the time and be inspired. And now I already can imagine TC's voice in my head <laughs> when he says, well, I picked up some interesting rhythms when I was sitting at the balcony listening to the birds. And you might be right, because some of those rhythms, if you break it down, I'm almost sure that they also show up on the OTS and these ratios somehow. Now that you're talking about stuff, uh, polyrhythms, I I basically have traveled a lot. I, I've been to Carnival a couple of times, actually three times. And I've been to Cuba, Indonesia. There's a lot of great rhythms that happen around the world. And I think for practical purposes, just be becoming familiar. For example, I, I had a, a series that was entitled Around the World in 80 Ways. And it was these two idiots that were traveling around the world with all different modes of transportation. You know, I mean, they could be riding a donkey cart in or riding, you know, behind a cow in India or something like that. And they went to every single different country all over the world. And so rhythm was a big deal. And a lot of times you wouldn't even need any any instruments because the rhythm of whatever you did could be a thumb piano, you know, one of those things if you're in Africa. That was almost enough to score things. But the main thing I learned is that most of the complex rhythms or polyrhythms, as, as you put it, Frank, have a couple of basic things and you can listen to it as a whole. What you were talking about, three to two or four, Four to, four to three, that basic rhythm is bop da 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 bop da 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 da. That's the rhythm. So if you go one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. All you have to do is get those and listen to it, and it's no not really complicated after that. I'm talking about practical use of rhythm in composition for the mediums that we're trying to work in, like television, film, and that sort of stuff. So you could take those simple things and make a chase scene, or you could make a score or something that was uh, almost anything, sports show, those rhythms. And it's amazing. There's a lot of rhythms in the world. And, you know, just even the patterns of the cuica in some of the Latin stuff, most people just think it's, oh, but, you know, but there's a lot more to it. Uh, there's definitely, definitely patterns because you put that against the clave and you get an overall pulse. I mean, that's my, my take on it. And I do listen to the birds a lot. I speak bird. <laughs> uh, anyway. Yeah, That's lots I, of Charlie Parker analysis, huh? Yeah, Charlie Parker, man. I speak bird. One of the things that I like to do with, uh, as I'm writing with my lines is I like to either anticipate them or displace them by pick a pick a value, you know, an eighth note, a sixteenth note, you know, quarter note, and a lot of times that will lead you to a, a a very interesting place that you had no idea was there because it will either anticipate or delay a harmonic change or an emotional change in a way that suddenly makes sense yeah. in a way that the the line didn't before, especially as they relate to one another. I mean, this is, it, it gets very complex, obviously, if you're dealing with 
more than two lines, three lines, four lines, and you start displacing things all over the place. But it can be an extremely effective way of moving outside of your comfort zone very quickly and getting to a place that you actually have to really spend time experiencing, you know, different textures. And you can take the same material and create a lot of different rhythmic and emotional responses just simply by displacing one note here and there. Another thing that I used to do when I was uh, studying too was to write a line and then randomly delete notes or, you know, randomly insert a rest, Mm -hmm. you know, here and there and see what happened for that. And that can also be a, you know, a great opener of doors to new ideas, you know, rhythms and, and phraseology that you haven't thought of before. I mean, the more we start talking about it, the more you think and ideas start coming up in your head. But I noticed a lot of, a lot of orchestrations for woodwinds. Let's say you have woodwinds and they're sweeping or there's there's runs and you want it to have some momentum, so you put it in sixteenths. And usually it's scale-wise stuff or scale-wise with shifts or intervolically where they sort of repeat themselves. But one thing that I do a lot is uh, actually a lot. I don't know if I do it a lot, but I, I do it often. Is I'll I'll take if I have flute, oboe, clarinet, bassoon, let's just say, and there's sixteenth note sweep. Maybe it's a couple of bars or whatever. There's usually in one of the parts, depending where you are in the scale or where you are in the intervolic string, where you could add a note. So instead of sixteenth note, sixteenth notes, maybe the clarinet. He you could get five notes in there, and the beats would be the harmonies that really count, you know, but you could have, so one guy's playing five and everybody else is four and then another guy plays five and, and that, that creates more of a natural sweep. It's, it's pretty, pretty interesting if you experiment with that, trying to write stuff. And that's without writing things that are ones between any two parts. Cause in scale wise, you know, you have major minor thirds. So there's oftentimes room data, another note and, and one of those guys, and you mark it in fives instead of three and two or something like that, you know? I guess three and two would work too. I haven't tried that. So there's little subtle stuff. Not to overuse things though, because if you overuse it, it starts getting too complicated. Think of it in terms of spicing things that are are pretty much standard, you know? So like when I was ghostwriting for Mike Post, he had a partner named Pete Carpenter who was an old guy. They used to call him crusty because he was crusty, probably crustier than me. And I'm pretty crusty sometimes, but he uh, had no tolerance for young guys. And so the young guys, and I was one of them, I'd turn in a score and I wanted a harp glist and I would write the pedaling for the harp and all the notes that I thought would go. And crusty said, uh, Tom, don't do that. That just makes you look like you're trying to impress somebody. Just write the starting note and the end note and write gliss. <laughs> he could care less about putting all the other notes notes in. So, And now that I'm an old guy, I have to say he's, he's right. <laughs> <laughs> he's right. Because a harp player will know kind of what notes that you got to do too, you know. They're, they're pretty smart people. They did stuff. It actually does not really matter because this also comes back to rhythm. The quicker the glissando on the harp, the less important the actual notes are. So it doesn't matter in which key you are. 
just let the harpist, you know, play over his major or minor scale, whatever he has on his pedals. And it will sound okay if it just appears in a very short amount of time, almost as decoration to, you know, whatever uh, transition into a new section. It really doesn't matter what the tonal center of the harp is, very often at least. And that mm -hmm. is something that I that I did because I was in a hurry and we had to finish, not quite sure for what project that was, but we had to finish uh, some of the cues. And I just wanted to have the harp on top of everything to sweeten some of the transitions. So I just transposed my MIDI keyboard to either plus three or minus three, right? And then I would just go with the, the thumb over all the, the white keys and would always have my either A major or E flat major run on everything, on every transition, no matter what the actual tonal center was. And it sounded great, sometimes even so unexpected that you think, well, this is a, a genius move. <laughs> Although it was just the pure and sheer laziness that was uh, coming out of me. But it sounded good in the end. So this also taught me if it creates a little bit of rub and dissonance, just play it faster and it will sound yeah. okay. <laughs> play it faster. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's all very interesting stuff. You know, I watch a lot of people producing stuff and Henry Mancini was really, uh, really good at communicating with rhythm section. He's just great because his whole thing was make it feel comfortable and lazy almost. He liked it. He liked to hear that big band, which the time was always great, but it was just kind of flowed all the time. And he would pound that into people. If you listen to the Pink Panther, those type of scores, you get that feeling. It's a very comfortable kind of groove that he, he did. Yeah, those bands swung like crazy. Yeah. They really did. Like most of those 60s era, you know, large ensemble bands were really swinging, 50s and 60s guys. Yeah. I kind of miss that a little bit now. <laughs> I guess the older I'll get, I'll, uh, I'll start missing earlier and earlier music. Um, oh, I think it was Gordon, wasn't it Gordon Goodwin that scored the uh, Incredibles um, yeah. cartoon? Uh, that was swinging. Yeah. That was great. Gordon but Goodwin, so he's rare. amazing. Yeah, great writer. Especially in, in scoring, I think TC, you mentioned that when you have complex, let's say transitions, because you know it's not very comfortable, neither for the audience nor for the musicians to play complicated stuff over a long period of time. So I think this really shines way more if you embed these more complex rhythms into bigger, simpler sections, because then it sticks out as a special moment and you get the idea that, okay, now we have you know, more poly stuff going on, but it comes from simplicity and it goes back to simplicity. And I think that is important to make it shine because otherwise it's just too demanding. So it is a little moment where you can actually show off. It's like the end credits of a great movie where you got to write just your C major and F major chords for the score. But now the director says, guess what? Do whatever you want over the end credits. I don't care. And then the composer goes nuts and crazy and you know does everything he can to fill these eight minutes or whatever it is with all the knowledge that he has about music theory. And you can really yeah. hear it. You can hear it if that was the case or not. 
<laughs> yeah, that's youth. <laughs> All right, you guys. It's a pleasure. I I really look forward to these get together. It's it's um yeah. so much fun. Yeah, great. All right. TC, have a good rest of your day. We will catch up probably over the next few days. Sounds good. Thanks for your help, Frank. This morning. I appreciate it. That was good. My pleasure. <laughs> okay. Take care, guys. Take care, TC. Bye-bye. This podcast is powered by the Music Interval Theory Academy, your resource for getting clarity and confidence in music composition and orchestration. See you inside at musicintervaltheory.academy.com.